The Black Doctors Podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season 2 provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others, because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. This week, I'm privileged to be speaking with Dr. Kevin Simon. He is a psychiatrist. He's currently finishing up a fellowship or two fellowships rather in child and adolescent psychiatry and addiction medicine at Harvard. He attended Morgan State University for undergrad, earned a medical degree at Southern Illinois University before finishing his residency in psychiatry at Morehouse. Dr. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, and, and just to clarify, Morehouse School of Medicine, because I know folks from Morehouse College, uh, technically there's two entities, but um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad to be here. So why don't you start by uh, telling us about your day-to-day job as a psychiatrist and currently as a psych fellow? Yeah, so I'd say it's rather broad. So within child psychiatry, I have um, different rotations that I go through, both inpatient, meaning like the inpatient psychiatric unit, then there's the medical floor patients that I will sometimes consult on, and then I have uh, uh, my own like continuity clinic that that I see patients individually. So child psych is interesting in that the patients really start from zero on up. And so, you know, early on in, in fellowship, uh, we're seeing, you know, kiddos who are two years old, four years old, questions about delirium or questions about withdrawal. Um, so, so it's been interesting from the inpatient and medical consultation side, given that Boston Children's, which is where I'm doing fellowship, um, has a it's, a it's a tertiary site. So we tend to get uh, some of the more complex cases to us. And then in my outpatient, uh, my youngest kiddo's four years old, and then all the way up until, um, you know, young adult, the 24, 25. And the cases or the, or the diagnoses that I see are, are wide-ranging. So the classical, you know, generalized anxiety, major depression disorder, some of the more serious mental illnesses like bipolar disorder or schizoaffective or schizophrenia, um, somatic symptom disorder. So it, it, it spans uh, the diagnostic spectrum. And then uh, the interventions include, you know, psychotherapy. So I, I love doing therapy, uh, individual-based therapy with patients. And then there's the psychopharm or, or medication management, um, where we have a lot of different medications in our, in our tool bag, I suppose, um, to try to treat some of these conditions as best as we can. So that, that's the the child side, um, then the addiction side, yeah. um, which is which is still based with children. Although I'm not going to see any, you know, four year, four or five year olds um, with with uh, addiction challenges. Um, so that really starts with the, I'd say, middle adolescent. So like teenagers on up, you know, we see pretty commonly. Um, tobacco or i.e. vaping, huh. nicotine. Um, so we, we still say tobacco because uh, nicotine is a byproduct of that. Um, and then marijuana or THC, cannabis, 
And then there is a slew of things that I'd say my patients teach me about that, you know, I've read about in textbooks, but didn't necessarily know people who were using them, including hallucinogens, LSD, psilocybin, or magic mushrooms, quote-unquote, ecstasy, opioids, like the opioid epidemic. Given that we're predominantly working with adolescents up into teenage years, we're, we're inherently including families. And so it's usually the pediatrician or, you know, just mom or dad are just, you know, concerned about their kiddos. They were caught or the school uh, notified them. And, and so we're trying to, you know, intervene pretty early because most people, give me a very long answer, most people <laughs> um, that have an actual substance use disorder, undoubtedly over 95% of them started before 18. Wow. So uh, we're trying to change that trajectory. Wow. That, and I honestly hadn't thought about things as simple as nicotine, right? I'm thinking you're seeing all, uh, you know, heroin addicts and and opioid addicts, but yeah, nicotine is a, it does start when you're young, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's when I was in adult training, yeah, you classically, you know, you're at uh, a major public hospital. So I was at Grady. You, yeah. You're seeing the heroin, you're seeing cocaine. Uh, but when you, if you get that history, like what was the first thing you started most often it's, it's probably alcohol and or nicotine. And so we kind of recognize that that trajectory uh, needs to kind of be halted um, earlier. So, it, it, you know, some of the, the options that we're trying to do is really just educate kids. And, and I mean, sometimes they, they do need to be put on nicotine replacement because it's pretty, it's pretty difficult to stop, right? So before COVID, if we can remember that far, <laughs> the, the, major, the major thing was like, a volley or, or basically uh, vaping related injury, yeah, right? Yeah. Like that was a thing that was coming out in different states, even Massachusetts, where I am, we're putting bans on uh, vaping devices. But then January, February hit and everything, everything was, you know, COVID as, as it should have been. But so, yeah, so the vaping devices are um, problematic because you presume or the kids think that they're not using that much. But then when we get the the levels they're equating to basically like a half a pack of cigarettes wow. a day. Kids don't generally think about it that way, and so so yeah, it, recognizing substance use disorders in kiddos it, it 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 gives you a different perspective certainly than than the ones that we classically see when we're in adult training or in adult hospitals. And when you're seeing patients uh, in your office, are these like twenty minute visits, forty five minute visits? How does the the day to day kind of uh, patient encounters work? Yeah, so when I'm wearing my, my true child psychiatrist hat, that is uh, a new eval would be an hour and a half. And then a follow-up is anywhere from 30 minutes or it could be an hour. Um, so in our setting, we don't, we don't have like the 15-minute uh, appointments. And then for the substance use clinic, every appointment is an hour. Whether or not the follow-up, it's an evaluation it's an hour. And then actually our evaluation is actually about three appointments long. So we meet with the kiddo by themselves, right? Like without the parents express uh, the nature of confidentiality. Then we meet with the parents and then we meet with them together to explain like, Hey, this is the condition that we think, you know, he or she is, is struggling with. And then here's our kind of plan. So, um, but yeah, we, we give folks um, a lot of time, when you're talking with a kid and, and you're talking about mental health or addiction, you know, that's not something that, that can just be quickly done in, in, in a short time time span. So um, the older patients, they kind of can, can 
get you know they can tell us what we want to know or or what they want to what they want to tell us in a pretty short time but to build rapport with kids um you, you need some more time gotcha it's so interesting so when did you decide to become a physician yeah so that was during college um so prior to college you know i played basketball and like most <laughs> most kids you know had aspirations of at least playing in college or or going to the nba um and then i got a knee surgery i tore my my left acl my junior year of high school did some rehab and i really thought i wanted to do physical therapy because it was like i was running on a treadmill in the water it just was cool um and then got to morgan freshman sophomore year i was a bio major um thought about doing physical therapy and at that time you needed to do like a hundred hours or so <laughs> of um pt time like you know volunteer time and so i was at i can't remember the name of the clinic but it was in baltimore and it was there i met the team physician for the ravens and up until that point i had not known i don't know why i would have known i didn't know that there were like team doctors right yeah. so i was like oh there's team doctor that's a cool thing just a subset of like opportunities came up so there was a program summer program i did in michigan called profile for success uh, at the university of michigan where they paid you to come to the campus and learn about medicine and i thought that was cool and then junior year at morgan there's a program, there's two programs through the NIH. One was Mark U Star, and then the other was MBRS. I don't even know what MBRS stands uh-huh. for anymore. But, <laughs> but, but, both program, but both programs paid part of your tuition, and um, all you had to do, I mean, I'll, I say all you had to do, what you had to do was participate in doing some forms of research. And so it was really like that sophomore, junior year, kind of doing these, um, opportunities and, and programs where I was like, oh, like people will pay you to think. And I thought that that was good. Yeah. And then when I went to Michigan, um, actually seeing the different specialties, I was like, oh, I think I could do medicine. Um, and it really was probably like my junior, senior year that I really committed to the idea of of being a physician. No, that's incredible. That's actually very similar to my story. I was a uh, pre-physical therapy major and did the shadowing. And that's when I realized that I wanted to go into medicine. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, up until that point, um, obviously, you know, we all have pediatricians, so we, we kind of see them, you know, to get our, our vaccines, but I didn't necessarily just have like a cadre of physicians around to just say, Oh, this is what you're doing. So yes, it, it really was college and um, getting those opportunities. And and so I after Morgan, between Morgan and Southern Illinois University, I did a postback program at SIU. Okay. And so that was that was another one and a half, two year period where it's like, okay, you really gotta like learn to buckle down and learn to like learn how to learn, right? So like in undergrad, you can kind of figure out how to get an A, how to get a B in some in some of your courses. But if you're trying to go to medical school and you recognize, at least I had recognized that, you know, I wasn't necessarily the most regimented student at the time. Uh, so those two years um, in Carbondale, um, where the campuses were definitely helpful for me. Um, 
so yeah, so so that's how I figured out medicine. And then in reference to going into psychiatry, mm-hmm. in med, in med school, my first year came in and I, you know, you hear about oh you gotta you have you gotta have research because that's what residencies are gonna want. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't know. Like yes, I did the the, the summer programs at Morgan. That's working in a lab on an undergrad campus that doesn't have a medical school associated with it. So I had, I thought I wanted to do general surgery at the time. Why? I don't really know <laughs> other than it's like the thing you're supposed to do if you're a guy, you know, surgery, right? right? right. So just that, that's really what. So I, I literally emailed, <laughs> this is crazy thing about it. I emailed maybe 15 or 20 like surgical departments like just around the country, like <laughs> I'm a first year med student <laughs> and I, you know, I'm looking to do research, right? Very, very, very naive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and How'd so that work out for you? It, it, <laughs> it actually, so one program, University of Wisconsin, I'll never forget, University of Wisconsin, Herbert Chen, who at the time was the director for the general surgery division, who's now the chair of surgery at UAB. Um, he emails me, says, Hey, you want to have a phone call? I say, sure. And then he's, he's asking me like, what do I want to get out of the summer? And I said, you know, what do students usually get out of the summer? And he's like, Oh, you know, we get, um, you know, our students get maybe two posters and a, and, and a publication. I was like, yeah, two posters, publication. That sounds good. And, you know, I, I don't even, I don't, like, I don't really know what I'm saying. Right. I'm just, I'm just trying to fake it till I make it right. So I, I literally, uh, it was May of 20, it would have been May of 2011. We have our final exam. I pack up all the stuff that I have that I own, put it in my car drive to Madison, Wisconsin, sublet a place, and for eight to ten weeks, I'm at the University of Wisconsin um, in, like, a surgical lab doing, like, pipetting Western blots, like, nothing <laughs> related to surgery. And it really was, a, I would say, like, an inspirational period because what I would do is I, I would meet with Dr. Chen every week about the progress of the project uh, and then just generally what I want to do in the future. And it's really, I would say he's the first person to plant the seed of, you know, research could be a thing that you do. Um, because he's like, yeah, I went to Duke for undergrad and Duke, which it still does, I think their third or fourth year, they can kind of do like a policy year or a research year. And he's like, yeah, I was doing HIV research, but that's not what I'm doing now. So this may not necessarily be what you do in the future. And so I, I'm not a neuroendocrine researcher, yeah. although I have a paper in it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so now I am kind of, I'd call myself a little R researcher, but yeah, so, so that, that's what I did that first summer, which kind of, again, gave me interest into research, but then it was really third year where you rotate through your different services and the way we had it set up, I did psychiatry, then pediatrics, then ob then general surgery, internal medicine, family medicine. And after psychiatry, my attending 
Dr. Jeffrey Bennett was like, oh, you know, have you thought about this? I was like, no, I want to be a surgeon. And he would email me pretty religiously throughout huh. the year. And I would say that I, I did enjoy, he had a, he had a, we'd call it a DD clinic or a developmental disability clinic where he was like a master diagnostician in that he could meet and communicate with people who could not communicate, right? So you, you could think about the classic autism spectrum, a verbal person, um, or, you know, severe mental uh, intellectual disability. And, you know, they're coming in with their caregiver and, and he could just somehow sense that there's something amiss or different. Um, and I, and I actually really did, did enjoy that clinic. Um, and then I got to, I, I enjoyed all my services. Then I got to surgery and this is the thing that I want to do. So I'm like, you know, pumped up. I'm reading, um, yeah. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm like staying up late. I got my little black book that I'm drawing in <laughs> and the, the, and this is, this is why it's important about who you're paired with. The resident that I was paired with was probably the most unhappy person I have ever met. <laughs> and just was, just was not in, she, she herself was not that enthused about what she was doing. And so despite that I was like excited about it, I really never got the sense that they were as, as excited about me wanting to do what they're doing um, rather than I was just like some appendage like tagging along. And so later that year, I you know, was thinking about the surgery thing and then thinking about psychiatry, he was emailing me. And then also that seed that Dr. Chen planted i was like oh you know what i hear people do like research years and like what what's needed to go into that so i started googling and nih had a research year and they had different types like they had surgery they had mental health they had ob and so i applied for two one in surgery one in uh, psychiatry and researchers from the university of pittsburgh reached out to me three different pis and one had projects, multiple projects. I was like, oh, that sounds good. That sounds cool. He's like, you want it? I was like, yes. Wow. So literally, literally third year, I finished my rotations, and, you know, my dean's, like, approving of it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go to Pittsburgh for a year. And everybody well, in my class was like, but you want to do surgery. Why are you going to Pittsburgh to do psychiatry? I was like, well, um, I'm not sure when else I would have a year to, to be able to like, you know, take some time for myself and see if this is something that I really want to do. <laughs> and so, yeah, but, so I went to Pittsburgh, uh, was there for a year, thoroughly enjoyed it. And really that's when I started to recognize the impact of mental health uh, from a individual and public health perspective. Cause I was working with like health economists um, about, you know, services, service use, and so it really, it, that's what really changed the trajectory to, to say, okay, I could be a psychiatrist and a psychiatrist who's interested in research. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's, that then became kind of like my, my calling. Um, wow. And so, yeah, so, so, you know, that's how I got into psychiatry. No, that's incredible. Two things I want to pull out of that. Dr. Chen, mm-hmm. what, what was his, uh, his heritage or ethnicity? Uh, he was Asian. Yeah. So, you know, so often people think that our mentors and, they, they need to look like us or be from a similar background, but oftentimes, you know, it, you can get this help from anybody. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if you just think about the numbers, right? So less than 5% of us are, less than 5% uh, physicians are Black or African American, right? So it's just undoubtedly that you're going to have to have mentors that come from other ethnicities and cultures. And what I would say is what really was nice about being paired with him or him reaching out was he showed his vulnerability, meaning if you if you like Google Herbert Chen, I think he's at UAB now, you're going to see a CV that is like impressive beyond impressive. Yet he would say, the reason that I'm here is let me show you all the rejections, you know, granted I wow. have. Let me show you what they said. What Let me show you what they said about me, you know, when I was coming up that, oh, is he, is he really ready to be a PI? Um, and so I think, I mean, it, you know, here it is nearly a decade later, I remember those conversations and even myself, I, I, I just submitted a grant, right? If it if it works out, it works out. But if it doesn't work, I also know that like that doesn't mean that I'm not a good clinician. I don't have good ideas because I see someone who's really at the top of their game, but they showed me their 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 failures. So um, yeah, I, I think it it would be certainly challenging for a, a student, a pre med or or pre pre professional student, any 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 field, to try to only have mentors that look like them. Now, I do have a lot of black mentors, and they're actually mostly female, because again, there's not a lot of us black males um, in medicine. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's really important to, to have a broad, what I call mentoring team. You should not have one mentor, but, but a team of mentors. Yeah. The second thing I want to pull from what you said is the uh, the impact on your timeline, because we get so wrapped up in comparing my timeline to his and to hers. and Yeah. 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 So you're right, man. Um, so yeah, so my, my med school, the class is small at the time it was 72, um, and all 72 or 71 tended to do everything in, in four years, I would say it, I mean, my mom would tell you like generally I've had like my own timeline <laughs> of doing things. So at Morgan, it was my junior year and I said, Oh, you know what? I really like sociology. I want to get a sociology major. Oh, but that's going to cause me to be here an extra year. And I said, okay, that's fine, but I really like this subject. Hmm. Um, and my sister would tell me now, like, oh, yeah, mommy called and was like, what is Kevin doing? <laughs> and my sister, who was older, was like, oh, yeah, you know, student, you know students do this. Um, but, yeah, I think, in, and then in med school, having the, the year out, really, again, my sisters came in handy because they were like, well, when else would you do this? Which is true. Like, when, when else would I have an opportunity to just live in a different state just for a year um, to just explore kind of ideas, right? So um, I, I always tell people, like, if, if you have an opportunity, study abroad, apply for something. Um, the worst that can happen is you get a no, but the best that could happen is you get a yes and you get a good experience out of it. Um, so, so, yeah, being hooked up on timelines does not serve you well, particularly in medicine, right? So if I think about this, Morgan, five years, two-year post-bath, that's seven years, five years medical <laughs> school, 12 years, four, three years for residency, because if you do child, you can quote-unquote fast-track. Um, yeah, so, so, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about nearly, 
you know, 17, 18 years of, of learning, right? So if I viewed it as this has only been challenging, I haven't had great experiences, this would be a very long time. But along the way, I met my wife, we've had a daughter, I've met good friends, I've lived in different cities, um, I've had a lot of great experiences that really could only be afforded to me because of the interest in medicine and what medicine, you know, could provide me. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think you definitely could. I, I had friends tell me at Morgan, like, why am I going to Illinois for a postdoc? Like, like they weren't in medicine. Mm-hmm. They just, they're just like, I'm, I'm going to work. I'm like, well, in order for me to get to Mexico, I have to kind of do this thing. Um, and, and what I would say is I've been very relatively strategic about what opportunities I would take and how they would benefit me, right? So there are a lot of post that programs. Um, um, Drexel has one, um, Ohio State. I mean, there's, there's really probably over 50 yeah, yeah. post that programs. Um why did I choose SIU's med prep is the name of it. It said during the interview, if you decide to go to SIU, we'll pay your tuition. I said, Oh, oh. okay. <laughs> I I will <laughs> I will do that. Now what what does that mean? I ha- that means I have to sacrifice potentially going to a Duke or a Case Western or some other more brand name schools, right? Um, and some of my classmates did do that. They they opted to go to quote unquote more brand name schools, and I was hopeful because they had a, a, a limited number of scholarships. And so I was like, "Oh, you're going where? Oh yeah, awesome. Go there. Like that's that's amazing, right?" And then it came where I was on the list, and I was like, "Thank you, Lord." Um, and so yeah, so that helped us with with tuition, and you know, I took out loans for for housing, but that 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 tremendously helped me from a financial standpoint. Um, and, you know, during residency, you can moonlight. So I've been moonlighting a ton uh, to try to help pay, pay those loans down. But, you know, the, the year out for research, well, okay. Oh, you're paying me. Okay. Thank you. You're paying me. You're paying yeah. my, my house inside. I don't have to take an extra loan out. So, so all the things that I've, that I've kind of done have been strategic in terms of not also adding a burden of debt. Cause I think one of the things I know for sure I used to think about was like, oh, should I get an MPH before school, right? Like, like does it help my resume? Mm-hmm. Potentially for some people, it may help their resume to get an MPH before school or some other degree before school. And then some people will do it in med school. I then learned, oh, wait a minute. When you become a physician, right, the MD or the DO, People then pay you to get the MBA, pay you to get the MPH, pay you to get the MPP, public policy. And so, yeah, I've been very strategic about, even if I am extending time and learning, okay, I'm not, I am myself not paying for it. It's getting paid for somehow, some way. Brilliant. That, that is that is absolutely brilliant. And I'm going to add to that, because in addition to you took this extra time, you have an amazing family, Dr. Brittany. Halford, who was on the show previously, yep. a beautiful daughter. Um, but I think in part because of your vast research experience, you are extremely, extremely well published. Because people will sit back and look at how does Kevin Simon have so many publications? It's because 
you're doing this extra research. I mean, you were recently in the New England Journal of Medicine. You've been featured in NPR, among other uh, outlets, as an expert in your field. And all of this stems from you putting this extra work and time in. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. People people will say, like, Kevin, where where, where do you find the time? And like, I'm making the time all, all the time. Like, I, you know, I'm not rushed in the processes that I engage in, right? So the the piece for the New England, a lot of people will say, I'm not a writer. Meaning, like, you know, Stephen will say, he's yeah, not, not a writer. writer. That's not true, <laughs> right? Like, technically, that's not true. I think everybody has a story. Everybody has a capability. I think what may be different for myself, I don't mind coming back to the horrible first draft that I, that I, that I put of ideas on, on a piece of paper. Hmm. Right. And I will keep coming back to that piece. Right. So, so the new England piece, although it was published in, um, but we're, we're currently in December, it was published in November. The piece was written back in July, August. Right. And then I submit it, I submit it. And then there's, there's reviewers and they say, well, we don't understand this piece, or we don't understand that piece. And so what is that, that, that forces me to then take time to say, okay, how can I make this a little bit clearer? How can I make this more nuanced? Right. But still keep my voice and what, what, what are the messages that I want to get across? But that takes being okay with, taking criticism, right? Because I know that people aren't criticizing me, like Kevin Simon. They're saying, wait, this idea that you have, I don't understand. It's just not clear enough. So I have to, if I'm saying I'm an expert, I have to be able to explain things in a very clear manner, right? So so that's the whole peer review process. Just now I submitted a grant, right? (laughs) There's a lot of critiques on the idea that I have but I can't be mad that people are critiquing. I have to say, okay, how can I make this make sense for them? Right? It's not enough for it to make sense to me. I have to make it make sense for other people. Um, and so that's just you have to work on your craft, right? So, so outside of being like an awesome podcaster, right? Like you, you play like ten, in- you put you play like ten instruments, right? Like you, you practice yeah, that, yeah. right? Like I. Right, you you go back and you say, okay, how do I, how do I get better in tune? How does this lyric sound with this particular? You know, that that's what I do with writing, right? So I like I read a, I, I read a lot, but then when I like I'm always drafting ideas about about concepts that I want to write about, um, and the reality is I know the idea that I have, it sounds good in my head. But how do I then translate to make it sound good to other people? And so, so you know, there's the the uh, New England piece. There's other pieces that I have that aren't aren't published yet. But I know, okay, I'm going to keep working on this. Um, so, I, so I tell people all the time, like, you can, you just got to be diligent about keep coming back to it. And so, some people don't want to read their trash work, right? Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Um, but, but for me, that that's something that I don't have a a problem with trying to keep massaging the work, keep letting it metabolize in my head. Um, how do I how do I make this make sense? So that that something that that I guess is a gift if, if people want to consider it a gift. No, that's uh, incredible, man. You 
you may be motivating me to start writing. It's going to take a little bit more motivation, um, but I'm thinking about it, <laughs> thinking about it. Um, speaking of podcasts, though, so we are actually wrapping up season two of the Black Doctors podcast. Um, this is the you're the final guest on for this season. We're recording in December of 2020. This year has been an incredible year. It's a positive way of putting it. As we're looking forward to this new year, 2021, we're still dealing with the fallout of this COVID-19 pandemic. And I'm sure I know this has had an incredible impact on people's mental health. What have you seen uh, as a psychiatrist in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on mental health? Yeah, so... um... Yeah, I just have to pause on, on, on COVID. So it definitely has been catastrophic in the sense of, you know, those that I see when I'm covering like adult inpatient units, people that, that are unfortunately homeless or displaced, underinsured, underemployed are in a situation where they're definitely more stressed. The middle income uh, families that I have patients, their parents are losing their jobs or have lost their jobs and, you know, certainly trying to hold on to unemployment benefits when they can get them. And then kids just generally, you know, in the beginning, you know, back in, in February, March, yeah, it's cool to be home for a little bit and, you know, not have to go to school. But I can tell you by by May, even though the quote unquote summer was coming, kids were like, I need to get out of the house. Yeah. Right. And parents and parents and parents are feeling it too. Like, what else can I do? One, because I don't even want them to be on this device all the time. So so definitely we have seen an increase in anxiety, an increase in depressive symptoms, an increase in the emergency room visits for mental health concerns, both from uh, the adult population at the adult hospitals I'm at, and then even the the child mental health evals. Um, so, it, so we know that there's a strain. And then also uh, another population that I don't think gets thought about enough is those that have special needs, mm-hmm. right? So again, if we're talking about um, autism, um, intellectual disability, usually those persons have special schools that they go to, right? And the idea that those schools had to be shut down because of, of COVID, now you shifted a whole cadre of people to be inside their house with parents that are not trained behavioral therapists or not trained ABA therapists. And so we definitely saw an uptick in our special needs population also coming to the hospital and being admitted because behavioral dysregulation kind of out the wazoo with the tension and the stress hmm. from the community coming into the home. So there, there definitely has been a worsening. I think as we're in December and we're, we're hearing the news about a vaccine, you know, presuming that the FDA suggests, you know, it's safe. I think I just recently saw that the former president will uh, take the vaccine, yeah. you know, live. I think as a, as a community, as a nation, we can kind of recognize, okay, there is going to be an end to this at some point, but despite the vaccine coming, we're still going to have to engage in universal practices like hand-washing, face masks for a little bit um, until enough people, right? Because we need to have millions of people get this vaccine. Right. Um, so, so I think recognizing that there is going to be an end is a positive 
the fact that Christmas is coming up, even if you can't be with your family face-to-face, we have adopted, you know, these virtual platforms that can be good. And then generally, I think the things that I've been telling patients is, okay, what can you do individually, like as a little bubble with your family um, that is outdoors, right? So families have been going to get their tree right, for Christmas. Families have been going, you know, so the Midwestern families and, and the, the West Coast families now, you know, they can go to farms if the weather's permitting, right? Yeah. Um, in the North here, we can still do sledding when snow is around, right? So you can still do family gatherings in a safe manner if it's the bubble that you've been, you know, circulating with um, these, these past nine, 10 months. So, so I think we're nearing the end given that the vaccine should be approved and we have to hold on. Um, And, you know, with regards to seeking services, I think we recognize now that virtual platforms are great for therapy. Um, The field of psychiatry and mental health has been providing virtual services for a long time now very robustly. So I think people should and can reach out if you have insurance, if you don't have insurance, there are providers who are wanting to service our community because we recognize the the challenges that COVID has presented. But so overall, I think because it, it's it's going to be the new year, we're going to get this vaccine. We can start to breathe just a little bit more easier, knowing that that help is on the way. And I was hoping for some positivity uh, as we look forward to this new year. And and there it is. Uh, appreciate you for coming on the show, Dr. Simon. For those that don't know, Dr. Simon does see patients uh, and provide uh, psych- psychiatric care in uh, Massachusetts and Georgia. That's where he has uh, medical licenses. And he's seeing those patients virtually. Um, if you are interested in um, getting your mental health needs uh, taken care of. Dr. Simon, how else can folks get a hold of you? Yeah, so, you know, folks can follow me on uh, Instagram or Twitter at Dr. K.M. Simon. So that's D-R-K-M-S-I-M-O-N. MD, Dr. Kevin Simon, MD. And yeah, follow me there, publications, interviews, podcasts, and you know, if, if folks want to reach out, uh, they certainly can, can email me by going on those platforms and, and I'll try to answer questions as best as I can. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thank you, Stephen. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.